On a bright morning in April, people in the city of Jalandhar in the state of Punjab stood out in the streets and saw something breathtaking, something that many of them had never seen before. The skies were so clear that for the first time in decades the soaring peaks of the Himalayas, standing almost 200 kilometers away to the northeast, were visible to the naked eye. But these were not the only people to see something incredible. As the world locked down to stop the spread of COVID-19, cities all over the world, from Beijing to London, reported clearer skies and better air quality. Not only were skies cleaner, but water quality improved too. From dolphins playing in the Bosphorus to cougars roaming the streets of Santiago, wildlife has been flourishing as global energy demand fell. These examples show how quickly planet Earth can recover when the use of fossil fuels drops, and is being seen by many as an opportunity to strengthen global resolve towards reducing carbon emissions and transitioning into a net zero carbon world. But there is caution here as well. Although we saw and felt that nature was rebounding, the truth is that we only temporarily reduce the speed at which we are hurtling towards a climate catastrophe. In the UK, for example, pollution fell to 2006 levels during the summer and then began to rebound. The danger is still here. The challenge still needs to be overcome. Hello and welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Alex Conacher. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we partner with Atkins to explore how the UK can progress towards its net zero by 2050 targets. We will learn how just changing our habits, although necessary, will not be enough. How we need to continue to change the way we generate energy, shedding our dependence on fossil fuels and changing the way we travel. To do this, will require commitment from society, strong leadership from government, and the harnessing of every tool at our disposal. It was the scorching summer of 2019. Europe was in the middle of a June heatwave. It killed close to 600 people and was only exceeded by the continent's July heatwave, in which 900 tragically lost their lives. Politicians decided enough was, finally, enough. And UK Prime Minister Theresa May declared that the country would become the first G7 economy to set a net zero target. The year 2050. Well, I believe that we have a moral duty to leave this world in a better condition than uh, what we inherited. And that's why today we're announcing that we will be ending our contribution to climate change by 2050 and legislating for a net zero emissions target. This will put us on track to be the first major economy to put this commitment into law. Now, this is an ambitious target, but it's one that it's crucial that we achieve, and it will take us working across the whole breadth of society to do that. She made the commitment after seeking advice from the Committee on Climate Change, an organisation set up in 2008 to provide independent advice to the government on meeting emission targets, building a low-carbon economy, and preparing for climate change. It was 2018, three years on from the Paris Agreement, and the government asked for advice on whether now was the right time to set a target. 
how far the government should cut emissions, and how best to do it without damaging the economy. And crucially, as we look ahead to putting this target, to meeting this target, some people think that you can either have low emissions or economic growth. That's not the case. Actually, what we've shown already is that you can lower emissions, and we have this net zero target, and have economic growth at the same time. The target is ambitious, but it is necessary, and if done right, could position the economy to the forefront of a new global initiative. But grand targets and ambitions to restructure the global economy need widespread public and political support, and sometimes that can come from unlikely places. The lockdown in response to COVID-19, for example. There's been evidence of people benefiting from nature and placing greater value on their local green spaces because of the physical and mental health benefits that they bring. So, in particular, people with access to gardens or cities、um, with parks and green spaces in them, of course, those close to the countryside, you know, have we think really started to value those much more than they might have done otherwise. This is Vicky Hutchinson. She's Atkins' environmental practice director for the UK and Europe. She has been looking at a resurgence of biodiversity, maybe not in absolute terms countrywide, but certainly in places where people are more likely to encounter it: main pathways and streets, and so on. If we look at some of the more kind of chemical effects of lockdown, you know, we can look at things like air quality and see some differences that have occurred then. So, for example, in some of our own research, there was a drop in most traffic counters on the 23rd of March when you know we started to go into lockdown. Some by as much as 75 percent, and that's equivalent to four to six decibels of reduction in noise. So there were some significant environmental impacts. And if we look at things that affect human health. Like, for example, air pollution—it's associated with chronic disease. So we might be interested in whether there would be a reduction in air pollution during lockdown. They found that the biggest change in UK air quality was unsurprisingly in urban areas. And the mean reduction in urban nitrogen oxide averaged over lockdown was typically a big 30 to 40 percent, and of nitrogen dioxide that was 20 to 30 percent. And these reductions were even greater at the roadside. Due to the weather conditions this year, there were actually higher levels of small particulates naturally than we would have seen in the equivalent periods in other years. But if we look at the population's exposure to air pollution, we estimate that in London the reduction in small particulate matter compared to business as usual was between five and twenty-four percent, depending on factors like people commuting. This has been the biggest contributor to improved air quality in Britain's towns and cities. Less traffic. One thing that we know has had a significant effect during lockdown was the reduction in traffic volume. So, according to the Department for Transport, it reduced by about 70% by mid-August. And similar data from the International Energy Agency showed that the global average road transportation activity fell to 50% of the 2019 levels by the end of March 2020. By the end of April, in Europe, the number of flights was down to around 90%. In the US, it was more like 50%. And globally, the demand for jet fuel was down by 65% year on year to, to April. The challenge then is to create systems that reduce our overall carbon and greenhouse gas emissions, but still meet demand 
which is set to rise once people return to work and all of their regular activities. My name's Tony Meehan. I lead our transport consultancy business in the UK. So that's front-end planning advice to clients across public and, and private sector. And it's across all modes of transport, road, rail, public transport, walking, walking, cycling. So it's interesting, isn't it, that you can see as a result of the, the COVID crisis, which has clearly affected the, the whole world, that there's a reduction in emissions that's improved air quality and obviously has reduced the amount of carbon emissions. Um, I think estimates I saw is between 10 and 30 percent. Um, and that's a result of really, I think, behavioural shifts, consumption and activity. But Tony says that the danger is that all this is temporary. But you know, all, the, all the research that's been done saw something that was done in August by Leeds University, for example, that it's actually made a, an impact now, but isn't really going to make any long-term impact on net zero, reducing the amount of, of carbon emissions. There is a link to this research in our show notes. If you look over the last however many 20, 30 years in the UK, we've been pushing an agenda called sustainable transport, which is trying to make, as its name suggests, transport having less of an impact on the environment. And that covers air quality, it covers biodiversity, and it covers reduction in carbon emissions. But actually what's happened over the last 20 years, all we've done is just almost keep a lid on things. The modal share, if you look at how much car use there is, how much public transport use, how much walking sighting has pretty much stayed, stayed the same over the last 20 years if you look at things like National Travel Survey. The impact of COVID has been to significantly reduce uh, amount of activity and it's changed travel behaviours. Um, and we need, that's the level of shift that we need if we're going to make a, a difference as that trend in modal share in the UK. But large scale travel will return. And the longer term impacts of COVID-19 is that we might see people shifting back to private transport especially in cities where people have avoided commuting or switched to private car. Cities like Bristol, which has spent 15 years gradually improving its public transport to reduce congestion in the city. So I think over the um, course of the last five, 10 years, public transport use has gone up by something like 50%. In, in Bristol, one of the few places which has increased bus use. As a result of COVID, I haven't seen any figures, but I suspect those gains have all been lost. So some real challenges about clawing back in the post-COVID era, those gains. And then allied to that, how do you make those gains um, through, let's say, electric vehicles or hydrogen-powered fleets to actually cement those gains into uh, a lower carbon trajectory? Electric vehicles, hydrogen fleets, an improved local cycle and walking infrastructure are just some of the measures that Tony says we will need to get to the net zero target. The UK is experiencing rapid growth in the EV market and has banned new diesel or petrol car sales from 2040. But it is planning to bring this forward after experts warned this was too late to meet the net zero target. But having the cars is just one aspect. The EV market will fail without adequate charging infrastructure. If we're going to get anywhere close to the net zero targets, we need something like 500,000 public charging points out there, out there on the network. According to the International Council on Clean Technologies, we need a 30% annual growth rate in new charging infrastructure to meet the demand that having around 6 million electric vehicles on the road would require. Today, with just under 300,000 EVs on the road, we have just under 20,000 chargers. 
Positive things are happening though, such as setting up a mass charging space at Braintree in Essex, due to open later this year, which will use 350 kilowatt superchargers to recharge 24 vehicles at the same time, using solar energy. Tony also says that we need to revisit the way that distribution networks have been planned based on long distance freight journeys. You know, the distribution networks we have for whatever you buy, just-in-time delivery, big warehouses, have all been built up upon effectively uh, relatively low-cost carbon-based transport. And I think one of the dangers is we try to simply replicate that and say, OK, let's electrify that, where actually we should also be looking at how our distribution network works. So you can see in COVID the proliferation, or it certainly seems a proliferation from what comes down my drive, of you know, deliveries from wearer of food, Amazon, whatever. It's just, I don't know if any research has been done on the, the explosion, if you like, of, of delivery vehicles. So um, I think we do have to look at our wider distribution. Tony says hydrogen as a fuel is exciting if it can be produced from renewable resources. But more projects like the recent Green Hydrogen for Scotland project from Scottish Power Renewables need to be undertaken to prove its viability. But a major challenge facing all countries is to bring about demand reduction and behavioural change when it comes to selecting transport modes. And that is difficult. It's not all about technology. We have to look at how demand, in other words, how much travel we consume, how much we travel, where we travel, how we travel, how that's going to change. And that's really important. And it has to be about moving to modes which have zero emissions as rapidly as possible. And that means providing attractive alternatives. My key point there, it's not all about technology. There is a big demand component and the COVID crisis has really demonstrated the impact of people not doing things, activity, and um, reducing that. But clearly, is that sustainable from an economic, and, uh, economic perspective? So if I move on to measures, what can we do? Um, so first of all, it's about comprehensive, high quality walking and cycling networks and possibly e-scooters. So lots of things have been going on. So London has been moving to you know, really quite high quality uh, cycling networks, the 12 Milli Holland schemes in London, um, either in process of implementation or have been implemented. And we're already seeing from some monitoring that's going on of those schemes that it's, it's increased the amount of people are, people are cycling. So it's clear that high quality cycling networks can make a difference. How can they be rolled out to other parts of the country? On top of that is the need to plan local services and amenities in a way that supports these models of transport something Tony calls localisation activity. So there's a concept out there, isn't there, that uh, I think various people put around 15-minute city that enables people to travel less and potentially travel by uh, low-carbon uh, emitting modes of transport, walking, cycling, potentially uh, electric vehicles, public transport that is electrically powered as well, as well. So, But that requires quite a substantial change in how we consume goods, where we have shops, where we have employment, where we have schools. So that may take some time um, to, uh, to, to emerge, but we have the wherewithal to you know, improve localisation of activities. And if you look at the trends over the last you know, 20, 30, 40 years, actually we've moved to a situation where we're not localising activities. We're you know, particularly outside some of the cities, we've got quite dispersed patterns of settlement. So big thing there that we know we can do, it takes time, it takes a concerted effort across different sectors. But fundamentally, the problem is one of energy use. And positioning the country for 2050 will not be easy. 
I'm Chris Bull, I'm the Managing Director of the Nuclear and Power Business within Atkins. We've got about probably about 2,000 engineers uh, involved in those sectors, uh, working on projects from Hinkley Point C all the way through to offshore wind, all the way through to conventional power and carbon capture and sequestration and similar. Chris says that all through the energy sector, there is a realisation that it has a critical place in our efforts to meet the 2050 net zero target and that it has to use its voice. But he does have a warning. I think people in the UK should be concerned, actually, is my headline message. So if we look at how we meet the 2050 net zero targets, there's a lot of literature out there about how we might do it. Certainly, electrification of large parts of society is central to how we would hit those targets. So we electrify things like road transport, greater electrification of heating, of industry. That will see the demands on the UK electricity grid probably double from the current levels. Predicting the actual energy requirements in 30 years has some uncertainty built in, but doubling present demand would see the UK pulling 645 terawatt hours per year. This would require an installed capacity of around 280 gigawatts. If you imagine that infrastructure in the energy generation sector broadly lasts on average about 30 years, between now and 2050, what we are going to have to do is replace all of the current electricity generation infrastructure and then build the same again. So it's a mammoth undertaking that is required. In terms of how much this would cost, if you look at a 280 gigawatt grid, maybe for a one gigawatt gas plant, you're talking of 800 million to a billion pounds to build a one gigawatt plant. For a, something like a, a size world C, maybe we're talking of the order of about 18 billion pounds to build size world C at 3.2 gigawatts. But obviously then through the operation, the uh, operational costs of size will see are much, much, much lower. So the financial modelling can become somewhat complex because of uh, life cycle costs here and that can feed back into different uh, capex costs. But you would certainly say that it's a huge undertaking. Chris says that it's a blunt statement, but that if it is left to market forces, we will end up with a hugely inefficient energy grid. And we should be rightfully concerned when we look at this in terms of how all of this infrastructure is financed. To be quite blunt, I think if it is left to the market to decide, we will end up with a, a hugely inefficient national grid system. The government have a key role to play here in making sure that the future national grid is fit for purpose. He says that so far there has been a lack of leadership and he identifies a need for a strategic planning body, something he terms an energy system architect. One of the questions we would ask is, where is the controlling mind in terms of what the future national grid should look like? And that's where we really stump ourselves, because there isn't a controlling mind. Um, there are market forces at play, clearly, and that's, that's very good. But I think the government have to intervene here, appoint a controlling mind over the system architecture, the energy system architect, you might call them, to really identify what the right investments to make are and hold government and industry jointly accountable for delivering that national grid of the future. Because there is not one accepted version for our future power generation. There's a lot of modelling out there. I wouldn't say there was one unified model that everybody agrees on upon, upon in regards of how we deliver the infrastructure and what it looks like. Perhaps one of the more prominent models is that from the Committee of Climate Change. The, 
so-called further ambition scenario that identifies future electricity generation of a mix of renewables and a firm power. Renewables are sources such as solar or wind power, which often have a degree of intermittency, while firm power is ready to go at any time, such as nuclear or alternatively, and unfortunately often, fossil fuels. I would say there is little progress being made at the moment. Uh, if you take the nuclear sector, nuclear is a big part of that firm power requirement. Obviously, we've got a Hinkley Point C ongoing at the moment, but what next? We probably need 10 gigawatts. We need three or four Hinkley Point Cs. We just got one at the moment. What's happening about the next investment in power stations? We've then got a large chunk of firm power coming from CCGTs coupled with carbon capture and sequestration. CCGTs are combined cycle gas turbines. A gas turbine creates electricity, then the waste heat is used to create steam and drive a steam turbine. Effectively, it gives us two attempts at getting useful energy out of the gas and becomes much more efficient. But nothing is free. But the reality of life is, if you look at what our future energy needs would be in 2050, we'd need to capture and sequester of the order of 176 million tonnes of CO2 every single year. The current worldwide capacity is 40 million tonnes. So the UK by 2050 needs four times the current world capacity. That's a huge undertaking. We've got to take carbon capture and sequestration more out of the laboratory and into industry. Then we're looking at offshore wind. I think offshore wind's on a, on a good track, but actually alongside offshore wind, we've also got to look at how we would improve grid resiliency so that we're able to store the power generated through offshore wind and other renewables so that it's available when we need it. And, and again, that's a huge undertaking. Without further commitment from the government on the industrial side, the policy alone will not go far enough. It can feel like they've said, OK, net zero, go. I quite like your summary of net zero go, because at times it can certainly feel like that. I mean, clearly there are mechanisms in place. There is a current energy policy, albeit that energy policy is due for renewal. And we've been waiting on that as an energy industry probably for well over 12 months now. It is scheduled out this August. The report is delayed due to the pandemic. But this is not the first time engineers have called for clearer energy policy. Nonetheless, the energy sector needs the certainty of a clearly stated, updated energy policy. Alongside that, the government needs to be very clear on what their financing models are for major energy infrastructure. And when it comes to major infrastructure in the broader sense, whether it's road, whether it's rail with projects such as HS2, for instance, or whether it's the energy sector, there are certain investments that only government can drive forward. Chris refers to projects that require major upfront capital expenditure, such as his own industry, nuclear, or industries where investment may be less attractive, such as grid storage. He argues that energy security is a key facet of the security of the nation and cannot be left to the market. But what can we expect from the renewed energy policy from the government that created the ambitious net zero legislation? That'll be an interesting question. I think, you know, there's a lot of, as I touched on earlier on, there's a lot of modelling out there that looks at 2050, looks at how we would achieve the zero carbon targets for 2050. I think what the energy policy will seek to do is probably pull together a lot of that modelling to provide one unified model about how we move forward. Once we have that unified model, there's then a question around what are the barriers to achieving the targets that are laid out. So, for instance, we might talk about the, the barrier of 
the suitable financing model for nuclear, how are we going to overcome that? There might be a question mark around the future role of hydrogen. Actually, what does that hydrogen system look like in terms of how we generate hydrogen? So steam, methane, reforming, or is it uh, through electrolysis of water? Uh, the way we distribute hydrogen as well, because there will be a, a sort of reassignment of much of the infrastructure, perhaps the gas infrastructure within the UK onto hydrogen. What does that look like? And what research do we need to do there to get hydrogen generation from, I guess what I'll call perhaps an early laboratory scale and into industrial scale? And then obviously the continuation of our investments in renewables. Offshore wind does have an important part to play here, but actually we'll start to go to deeper waters for offshore wind as we use up our prime sites sort of closer to land. We are going to talk more about deep water offshore wind in an upcoming episode. As we move into deeper waters, what are the complexities associated with perhaps floating offshore wind? What does that do to the price of offshore wind? So I think the key thing here is the unified model of what 2050 looks like in terms of the energy infrastructure. Within that model then, what are the risks to achieving those 2050 targets from a technical or a commercial perspective? And what are government and industry going to collectively do to remove those risks to make damn sure we succeed in what is a, a rightfully demanding target? Looking to the future, Vicky cautions against relying too much on changing habits. The immense shutdown that was implemented in response to COVID-19 saw a noticeable improvement in air quality, but this needs to be taken in context. Clearly there were some major impacts as, as people were locked down and you know there was this reduction in transportation and we did see these some benefits that we've already talked about. But really, if we look at GHG emissions, so the, the CO2 equivalents that are causing climate change, at their lowest point in April, daily CO2 emissions were roughly at the level that they were in 2006. 2020 emissions overall are expected to decrease by between 4 and 7% compared to 2019. So that's not an enormous impact. And while emissions fell during the peak of the pandemic confinement, they've already recovered to within 5% of the same period in 2019. So we shouldn't overstate the benefits of lockdown for tackling the climate emergency. The solution isn't in us staying within our homes and trying not to drive our cars. That's an unfeasible ambition, given the way our society and our communities are set up. What we need is the things that we talked about earlier, better leadership, stronger regulation, more investment, targeted innovation. And, and it's this whole of systems thinking that will tackle the climate emergency. And although Britain is small compared to some of the major contributors to climate change worldwide, it has a responsibility to mitigate its own impact, but also to take its place in influencing the markets that will have a direct impact on climate change. I think we have a responsibility to not only consider our, our own contribution, but we can also think about the benefits to be gained from moving quickly uh, to tackle the climate emergency. So the, the people that develop the technology that's most effective, that's cheapest, 
um, that develops the skills should be best placed to capture the markets that will be associated with uh, net zero. I think that one of the things that's challenging the UK's ability to uh, grab at those markets is the lack of regulation. So at the moment, it's the responses are being entirely left to market forces. And particularly when you look at some of the really complicated and innovative technologies, that's not very helpful. So I think if we can put in place some good regulation and some stretching standards, that our, our race to meet those will help us gain some competitive advantage and mean that we have economic benefits as well as delivering our moral responsibility. And there is still time to meet our targets, to reduce carbon emissions and to provide an environment for future generations where the air and water is clean and people can see the Himalayas from their doorstep. Here is Chris again. I think there is hope and, you know, I'm very, I'm positive about it, but I'm positive if we take the right action. Listen, I think it was absolutely brilliant that the government can, committed to legally binding net zero targets for 2050 this time last year. I think that's brilliant that the UK got on the front foot to commit to those targets. We must though take the next step and this is not about modelling what the future might look like. There's so many models out there and to be quite blunt, I've just had enough of all the modelling that goes on. We've now got to take action. If we take action now, we've got an idea of what we need to do. We've got the, the commitment from the legally binding targets. I think there's a fantastic opportunity for the UK to lead the world and show how you achieve net zero. So I think we should look at this with great optimism and be hugely positive about the future. Within that though, we've got to make damn sure that action is taken and, and that we really do get on the front foot in all of this. Engineering Matters is a production of Reby Media. Our producers are Alex Conacher, Bernadette Ballantyne, Rian Owen, Ross McPherson and Tim Sheehan. This episode was written and hosted by me, Alex Conacher. My co-host was Rian Owen. Script editing by Bernadette Ballantyne. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. Series supervision by John Young. And our own sustainable alternative is Rory Harris. Special thanks to Atkins. For some interesting resources on the future climate choices we will have to make, check the resources section in our show notes. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, or share us on Twitter and LinkedIn. <laughs>